Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be back, and I'm glad we're making new episodes because there is so much going on in the world and lots to talk about. And I'm going to start with a big story that's been unfolding while we've been gone, and that's the devastating floods in Pakistan. The country's been dealing with nonstop monsoon rains since around mid-June, combined with water from melting glaciers. And a couple of weeks ago, about a third of the country was underwater. Pakistan on the front line of the climate disaster. The flooding here is on an epic scale with streets turned into rivers and entire districts submerged by the unending cycle of monsoon rains. And while it's already been a few weeks, a lot of people are only now starting to get help, and we're still learning about the full extent of the destruction. Damages are estimated to be in the billions. And on top of the flooding, the country's now also facing a food crisis. Staples like flour and tea are running out, the storekeeper saying Monday. And customers say if items are available, they're being sold at higher prices that many can't afford. Last week, when U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Pakistan, he made a direct link between this disaster and climate change. And he didn't hold back about who's to blame. He pointed the finger squarely at high carbon-emitting countries. I've seen many humanitarian disasters in the world, but I have never seen climate carnage on this scale. These extreme weather events have the fingerprints of human activity all over them, specifically the burning of fossil fuels eating our planet. It is a question of justice. Pakistan is paying the price of something that was created by others. Our guest this week is Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. He's an artist and climate activist, and for the last little while, he's been helping coordinate relief efforts. He also happens to be the grandson of former Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto Sr., and nephew of the assassinated former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. We talked about what he's seen on the ground in the Sindh province, what Pakistan needs right now, and what climate justice looks like to him. Hey, Zulfikar, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. So you're in Karachi now, but I know you've gone back to your home village a couple of times. 
Can you tell me about, you know, where it is and, and just tell me a little bit about those trips? So um, I'm from Larkana, which is about a six hour drive north of Karachi. And, uh, you know, the drive there just keeps on getting worse and worse. When we first went from Karachi uh, on August 23rd, when the rain started happening, um, there was definitely water everywhere, but the highway was still open and the highway was still fine. Then on the way back to Karachi, water was flooding onto the highway. There was water uh, up, until the, up until the windows of the car. And then when we went back to Larkana, we had to take an entirely different route because that highway um, was not only underwater, but also had been broken uh, to release water pressure so that the water from the mountains, the rainwater from the mountains could go into the river. We had taken another entirely different route, which took us 10 hours because those two roads had flooded as well. And Larkana was in the middle of all the flooding. Now, now Dadu is sort of in the middle of, of all the water right now, and everyone's just kind of waiting for it to drain out. I think that illustrates how difficult it is to get to some of these places for any help to get to these places. But what do things look like once you get there? I mean, if the house is still standing, it's halfway in water. There are some villages, there's some cities where, that have been entirely evacuated and the people who are still there are having to live on their roofs. Um, boats are going through main town centers. So going back the second time round, um, there was a clear difference also in the quality of the water. By this point, the water has mixed with um, sewage water. Um, it stinks. It smells like, uh, you know, sewage. Um, and it also smells like death. Going on the highways, you see hundreds of, of, of dead buffaloes, dead water buffaloes. You see hundreds of dead donkeys. You see hundreds of dead uh, goats, of dead sheep. When I got to Larkana, um, you know, there was three feet of water around our house. There was three feet of water in our house. Uh, our houses are not built to withstand this amount of rain. So, you know, things, even, even a well-built house starts to, starts to crack. Um, and when I went out into the village the next morning, you know, we were walking through and I could hear houses falling. And the sound of a house falling is really quite terrifying. It sounds like a bomb because it's, it's the instant sound of, 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 I don't know how many tons of brick coming down all at once. How are people dealing with this kind of precarity, I guess, like this risk of their house collapsing in on itself? People are very scared. People are not living in their houses. People are outside. People are living in tents. People are living in shelters. People are living underneath, if they can afford it, mosquito nets. We did a medical camp uh, just last week, and people were coming to camp saying, I can't sleep at night. I have My heart is beating so fast. Do you have medicine for for a heart that beats too fast. You know, we don't have this uh, language for mental health like, like that has been developed in, in, in the West. We don't have the language to express anxiety or PTSD. So people, people simply refer to the, to the beat of the heart. You need a boat to get to these places. The amount of water cover is really significant. One third of Pakistan. I mean, that's more than half of the size of the United Kingdom. That's the entirety of Texas uh, underwater.
things have been worse in the Sindh province than anywhere in the country, right? And just to give people an idea, it got almost six more times rainfall than its 30-year average this monsoon season. New satellite images show the impact of the monsoon season in Pakistan South that's killed more than 1,100 and affected 33 million people. The large blue area is the Indus River, now roughly 100 kilometers wide, as the floodwater has created a giant inland lake overflowing rich agricultural lands. Around 90% of the province's crops have been damaged. Why has this part of the country been affected the way that it has? You know, there are many, there are many, many reasons. And one of the main reasons why is simply geography. The majority of Sindh, not all of Sindh, but a lot of Sindh is at a much lower elevation than the rest of the country. It is at sea level, and then it goes to below sea level at the Indus Delta. So what's happening is that all of the rainwater is coming down from the hills in Balochistan, South Punjab, and all of the glacial melt is coming down from the river as well. So, and then of course there's rain falling above your head. So it's all gathering and collecting on what we call uh, the right bank of the river Indus, which is where Larkana is, Jacobabad is, Shikarpur, all of these cities that have been submerged, Dadu, Meher, Kambashidatkot. Um, and one, we simply have geography. The second is that our infrastructure um, has not been built to, to, to deal with a river that naturally does flood and that naturally goes through big, what I like to say, tantrums. You know, our river Indus is alive. Pakistan has uh, 15 barrages on the river Indus and over 150 dams. Uh, 50 of these dams have broken. Um, and what's happened is, is that this infrastructure has led to an unequal distribution of, of flood water and have, and have actually uh, been really, really disastrous in sort of holding back water when it could let water flow down to the sea. Okay, and then... Can you unpack for me why what's happening in Sindh is a big deal, not just for the people in that province, but also the rest of the country? You know, like you said, 90% of Sindh's uh, crops are ruined, are damaged, are underwater, and the majority of Sindh are farmers. Most of them don't own the land that they farm. They're under various different systems. These people have lost everything. They've lost the land that they were farming and they've lost their homes and they are um, extremely uh, angry. And there's plenty of proof about this on social media um, uh, uh, as well. People reacting against their elected representatives because their elected representatives are nowhere to be seen. <laughs> The people who come to us for votes during the election are ignoring us now. Then there's the sort of prolonged economic aftermath, which is that our major industries, which are connected to agriculture, have taken a huge hit. The knock-on effect is that the private sector and the banking sector will also be suffering. A lot of our agriculture in, in Pakistan also consists of cash crops like cotton. In fact, H&M, Zara, Uniqlo, you name it, they'll have T-shirts and pants and shirts made in Pakistan. Um, and uh, I think around 50% of the entire country, that's not just the province of Sindh, which is the second smallest province, um, the, the entire country's cotton crop is, is ruined. And that is going to have a tremendous impact also on global markets as well. The fact that so much of the crop has been washed away, what does that mean for 
the rest of the country when it comes to food supply? What kind of impact is this going to have on food security? There's an immediate impact on food security. We cannot find vegetables in any of the markets. Uh, the price of tomatoes has tripled. Uh, so already we're seeing the impact of this. People are already starving because in a pinch, maybe they would have been able to have, to have gone to the crops, to the field. But now that that is also gone. If they don't have gas, there's also no dry wood to burn to make food. So starvation is both an immediate concern as well as a long-term concern. Now, the survivors face a new challenge, hunger. Our team on the ground visiting this relief camp in Peshawar, Pakistan, where families lack basic necessities. People crowding supply trucks, begging for food and water. Um, most of the crops that were damaged uh, were rice, were wheat. Um, Sindh is a very large rice growing region, probably the largest in Pakistan. And especially the districts of Dadu and Larkana and Jacobad and Kambar and Shadadpur, which have been very badly affected. So unless we import at huge levels very, very fast, um, then um, starvation is, is just going to happen. It's a fact. We have taken shelter at the school, but there is no food here. We'd be better off dead. Mm -hmm. and, and to go back to what you were saying about how the agricultural sector is kind of like the foundation of the economy, and if that takes a hit, then everything else takes a hit. What else do you think is in store for Pakistanis in the long term in terms of the consequences of these floods aside from famine? You know, a lot of people are thinking, you know, I was, I was speaking to Faisal Eidi, he's part of the Eidi Foundation, which is a, a historic foundation in Pakistan, and their work is with, with charity and, and amongst other things. And uh, he was saying that we're probably going to see a mass migration out of Pakistan. Um, you know, farmers who have lost everything, of course, you know, where do they go? Um, but even, even middle class people, even working people, people are not able to see into the future uh, people are not able to see past this. Even with COVID, there was a sense of being um, united and there was sort of a sense of coming together and there was a sense of there being an end to this. But within this disaster, people are not feeling that the, the air is, is, is misery. So we might see a brain drain in Pakistan. Some of the other things that I've seen experts talk about as consequences of these floods are, you know, the threat of a malaria epidemic, for example. This is the season for mosquitoes to breed in stagnant water. Also, September and October are months when we receive a lot of malaria and dengue cases due to mosquitoes. That is why we are receiving many cases of malaria at these camps for flood victims. Yes, dengue, dengue, not just malaria, but dengue and malaria both have uh, already spiked. Um, already people are dying from it, already people are sick from it. There's no cure for dengue. Um, it's affecting children the most, it's affecting women the most. Um, this is an immediate impact. Fungal diseases, skin diseases are affecting people already. That was also an immediate impact. Um, and there are already underlying conditions that, that make that on a health sort of level make this even worse. Those underlying conditions are nutritional problems. People already are not getting the proper nutrition that they need even before the floods. And now people are just not eating. They're not able to eat. The health services that did exist were already um, were already poorly funded. 
um, and many of those rural health centers are now underwater. A lot of these health centers that would otherwise uh, record statistics around uh, around deaths and uh, sickness are underwater. So we have to think that any estimate around around how many people have died is a conservative one. So based on what you're saying, the water from these floods hasn't even fully receded, right? So is there even a point right now of talking about recovery or where are things in terms of recovery efforts? We're still in relief. We're still in relief efforts. We're not in recovery efforts just yet. Uh, we're thinking about recovery. Um, you know, we're thinking about rebuilding, but we're really still in the process of relief. People still have not been rescued. People still have not been reached. Uh, the highways are still flooded. Um, there's still a lot of water that has not been drained. It should hopefully be a matter of days unless it rains again, which there are predictions of, uh, in which case we will still be talking about relief even when the water drains, right? Because people will mm -hmm. still need to be reached, rescued, given medical aid too. So we're not really in, in talking about recovery just yet. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. Recovery costs are expected to be in the billions. The government puts flood damages at 10 billion. Independent analysts say it's more like 15 or 20 billion. And Pakistan is already deeply in debt, so this is money the country simply does not have. This is something UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stressed when he visited. He urged the international community to step up. Wealthier countries are morally responsible for helping developing countries like Pakistan to recover from disasters like this and to adapt. For context, Pakistan is responsible for only 0.4% of the world's historic carbon emissions, while the U.S. and the EU are responsible for 21 and 15, respectively. It's infuriating. It makes you so mad. And, it, and it's all part of the system that, that was once droning us and bombing us and is now creating a climate catastrophe. You know, there's been talk of, of uh, reparations uh, I think the most reparative thing to do would be to cancel debt, cancel debt from the IMF, cancel debt from the World Bank, uh, who have funded these mega projects that have also exacerbated the floods, such as the dams, barrages, uh, roads, highways, etc., that have been anti-nature, anti-poor, anti-indigenous. But then in terms of reparations towards the Pakistani state, um, this is this is a question that even Pakistanis sort of raise an eyebrow for, because is the state actually... Um, accountable? Can the state be held accountable? Where will the money go? What will it finance? Um, uh, uh, will, it, will it go into funding infrastructure that is 
pro-indigenous and pro-nature, or will it go into the hands of politicians? Will it go into the hands of much larger landlords? Will it go into the hands of industrialists? Th these are all questions that, that, that we're asking. So essentially you're saying this idea of reparations in Pakistan in particular, there is reason to be like skeptical of that idea because who knows where this money will go. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he's really stressing that Pakistan and other developing countries are paying the price for the actions of big emitters. And he's been calling for something called a debt swap for climate vulnerable countries. And I've heard you say before that you think debt should be canceled. But what he's advocating for is this idea that instead of making debt payments, the country would make payments to finance climate projects at home. And I wonder what you think of that. Well, you know, we have we have to think out of the box. Now, in terms of debt swap, um, I think I think it's a very good idea. Um, I wonder, though, for example, the IMF and the World Bank, um, how they will respond to it, how they will react. Now, I hope that they've had a change in heart and that uh, and that they actually seek the Council of Indigenous People, especially the Indigenous people of the river, the Mohana, various different tribes that have been displaced over, over the past few decades in order to um, actually create an infrastructural system um, that is beneficial to the people of Pakistan and not just the big guys in power. Antonio Guterres has pledged to advocate for debt swaps with the IMF and the World Bank, as well as at the G20 meeting. And this is exactly what Pakistan needs. Instead of paying the debt, being able to invest that money in what the country requires. Right now, Pakistan's total external debt and liabilities make up almost 40% of its GDP, or $130 billion. And it's left the country with little money to spend on government programs and disaster management. And that number continues to rise because they're forced to borrow more to pay back the debt and support their budget. So just to wrap up then, what do you think Pakistan needs in the short term and how should the world be responding to what's happening there right now? In the short term, Pakistan needs food. We need, uh, you know, there's, there's an imminent famine because of how much land that we've lost. Um, then, of course, there's rehabilitation, sustainable rehabilitation. How do people build back their homes to withstand extreme weather, especially um, if climate change is now the new normal? There's definitely a large section of the international community that has been overwhelmingly supportive and overwhelmingly sympathetic and empathetic towards what's happening in Pakistan. Um, I also think that there's a part of the international community that that believes that bad things simply happen to countries like ours. Uh, and that has been because of uh, U.S. foreign policy over the past uh, few decades or because of many other foreign policies towards us over the past couple of decades. And I really hope that this... Um, that this changes because we will need the support of the international community and Pakistan should also be willing to lend its support um, to other countries that will likely also be facing climate disasters of their own. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.
So before we go, I want to spend some time with another big story that broke while we were gone that's been dominating our timelines. And that is, of course, the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Over the last week and a bit during the official period of mourning, life in the UK has been put on hold and we've seen an outpouring of grief from around the world. Some had waited all night, a patient, reflective audience, to see a moment of history, but also just to say goodbye. But that reaction hasn't been universal. Across the UK, anti-monarchist protesters have been publicly challenging the crown at events marking the death of the Queen and the ascension of King Charles to the throne. They've been yelling and booing in protest. God save the King! holding up signs that say things like, not my king, and F imperialism. There have also been instances of police detaining and arresting these protesters, prompting criticism and raising questions about free speech in the UK. It's been quite mixed. There's people who've just joined, passing by, who've just helped us hold the banner because they agree with it. They think that everyone has a right to be able to express anti-monarchy views. And the fact that we can't right now is quite disturbing. There's been various people who've said, we support you, good for you. It's been a week of deep reflection on the Queen's legacy. And for some people in former colonies, it's brought up a lot of trauma. There's been renewed anger over the Crown's role in Britain's colonial history. We heard that in this speech from South African Member of Parliament, Julius Malema. It will be wrong of me to leave this mic without saying to Britain and everybody else who care, we do not mourn the death of a colonizer and a murderer who came and killed our people and she's wearing proudly a stolen goods on her head. We have nothing to do with the queen. Some people are seeing this moment as a turning point. They're questioning what place the British monarchy should have in their lives. And in the Caribbean, it's put some fire behind political movements that were already underway. The prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda has announced that the country will hold a referendum to remove the king as their head of state. This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy, but it is the final step, as I said before to complete um, that circle of independence um, to ensure that we are truly a sovereign uh, nation. What sort of time frame? This is also being considered in the Bahamas. Um, The only challenge with with us moving to a republic is that I can, as much as I would wish to do it, I can't do it without your consent. I have to have a referendum and the Bahamian people have to say to me, yes. And it came up in Australia. She certainly had a a powerful connection and we've witnessed that firsthand here in Australia. And uh, just to confirm, though, no no referendum in, in your first term? No. Back in April, we talked about the challenges the British monarchy is facing. This was when Prince William and Kate Middleton went to Jamaica. There was a lot of backlash to that visit calls for slavery reparations, and a declaration that Jamaica would also become a republic. That history is super relevant again right now, and if you haven't heard that episode, you definitely should. You can find it in our feed.
We are always trying on the show to highlight perspectives you don't often hear. And so we thought it was important to just acknowledge the reckoning that's happening in light of Queen Elizabeth's passing. And we'll keep an eye on all of these stories, as well as the conversation around the monarchy that's happening within the UK. And that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald, and our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer, and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.